I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hello and welcome to the week two edition of Flight Deck. An inside look at the New York Jets. I'm your host, Rich Samini. I cover the Jets for ESPN. And you can find Flight Deck wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is jam-packed. You're going to love our guest in our next segment. We'll talk to former Jets quarterback Chad Pennington. We're going to talk about Zach Wilson and also his current involvement with the Mayo Clinic in college football. Later, we'll get to your Twitter questions. And of course, we'll preview Jets Patriots. But for now, we have to dissect the loss, the 19 to 14 loss in Carolina, a game that, in my opinion, was so predictable. You knew Robbie Anderson was going to burn his old team for at least one big play. And you knew Christian McCaffrey was going to go off. And you kind of knew Sam Darnold was going to have a pretty respectable showing against the team that traded him away. But let's talk about the big story. Zach Wilson and the pass protection, or lack thereof. Six sacks, 10 quarterback hits, and 16 pressures. Now, that 16 is according to NFL Next Gen Stats. Robert Sala said the Jets actually gave up more than 20 pressures in the game. Uh, The kid is not going to make it to October at this rate. In last week's prediction, I told you that the Jets' offensive line was going to struggle early. New system, first game together as a starting five. They had no preseason reps together. You know, a quarterback, a rookie quarterback. So that's that's a bad mix, and it's going to take time. And you saw it play out in living color on Saturday or Sunday in Carolina. Zach Wilson, you know, thank goodness he wasn't hurt. He said he had a sore neck, got a little bit of whiplash. Uh, the Jets are lucky that's all it was. The offensive line was not good. It just wasn't good. There's really no excuse for it. Now, of course, a little perspective is needed. I mean, Joe Douglas is getting killed. Fans are saying, oh, he doesn't know how to put together an offensive line. I was actually in the Charlotte airport on Monday morning waiting for my flight back to New York. And a, a lot of frustrated Jet fans, I heard one guy, you know those guys in the airport who talk loudly on their cell phone and everyone hears them? Well, I had a loudmouth Jet fan. And the first thing he says to his friend he was running down the game. He goes, our offensive line sucks. Well, my my role here is to just say relax. And, and it's kind of funny because here's me, usually Mr. Cynical, being the voice of reason. But relax. It was only one game. Let's take an analytical approach on this. First of all, out of those six sacks, I think you have to put two on Zach Wilson. There was the first one where Brian Burns was unblocked. I think... I think Wilson should have seen that and thrown to his hot receiver. And then the fourth sack, he was running around crazy in the back. You know, according to the data we got, he ran 26 yards trying to avoid would-be tacklers before he finally gets sacked. He looked like Patrick Mahomes in the Super Bowl, just the way he was running around. He obviously has got to throw that one away. So I think two of the six go on Wilson. 
you know, it's not just the O-line. I know we want to blame them. They're the easy scapegoat. Uh, but everything has to be in sync, and the Jets were just not in sync. It's a little bit troubling because this wasn't an exotic blitzing team. This wasn't the Baltimore Ravens or or even the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. This this was basically a lot of four-man rushes that they had trouble blocking. They were doing a lot of twists up front. The Jets had problems with their communication and picking up the different twists. So a lot of teaching points this week for the coaching staff. They have to get it fixed. I think many of these errors are correctable, and there were many errors. Uh, Let's go to the stats here. You guys know I love this stuff. The Jets gave up pressure on 44% of Wilson's dropbacks. That ranked 29th in the league in week one. You know, they, uh, I said after the game, Connor McGovern said, well, they were heating us up because we had a young quarterback, but actually not really. As I just alluded to, they were only blitzed on 23% of Wilson's dropbacks. That was 21st in the league. So it wasn't a lot of blitzing. It was a lot of four-man rushing, and the Jets couldn't block four. Now, before I get into this, the analytics stuff, and you see the pro football focus grades come out every Monday, those grades are meaningless. Pro football focus grades are entirely subjective. We don't know who is supposed to block who. Only the coaches and the players you know, look at that. I think PFF is great for compiling data, you know, objective data, but grading players is completely subjective. I prefer to use the next gen method. That's at least somewhat, you know, objective because they're grading based on uh, whether a player is blocking long enough. They have those little computer chips in their shoulders so they can estimate, you know, they can get an exact distance between one player and the next player, how long a player is blocking a player. So using that concrete data, which is still not 100% completely accurate of what's happening, but it is more accurate than PFF. And here's a breakdown of the Jets' offensive line. George Fant, seven first pressures allowed, zero sacks. Makai Becton, five pressures, two sacks. He did not complete the game, of course, because of his knee injury. Greg Van Roten, five pressures, one sack. Elijah Vera Tucker, Six pressures, one sack. And Connor McGovern, four pressures, one sack. And oh, by the way, the run blocking stunk too. I won't go into those analytics, but those numbers were not good. The good news is that Zach Wilson really showed his toughness. He showed he could take a hit. Uh, I thought he was really shaky early on. He really struggled in the first half. I think the game was moving a little too fast for him. He really struggled under duress. He was 0 for 7 when pressured. Much better in the second half. He just looked a little calmer, was seeing the field better. I thought the most impressive sequence was in the Jets' final possession where he got squashed by Derek Brown and one of the other defensive linemen. There were like nearly 600 pounds on him, squishing him into the turf. You know, you almost expected to see a chalk outline on the on the artificial turf there in Carolina. But one play later, he gets up and he throws a laser to Corey Davis for a touchdown, his last throw of the game. Let me tell you something about that throw. That ball traveled 29 yards in the air, and the window when the ball arrived was a half a yard. A half a yard, that's 18 inches a little tiny window. He threw it 29 yards. That was a big time play. I think if you're a Jet fan and you're rooting for Zach Wilson, 
you walk away from the game saying the kid got the snot beat out of him and he made that throw at the end of the game. I think that was a statement throw. I could tell from talking to the players afterwards, he won their respect. Veteran players are always looking at rookie quarterbacks to see if they're tough enough. But we couldn't judge that in the preseason because he didn't get hit, not once in any of the preseason games. So they're looking to see how a guy responds when he gets beat up a little bit. Can he take a punch? On Sunday, Zach Wilson showed he can take a punch. He took too many. That's a problem and it's got to be fixed. But that's your encouraging takeaway from week one. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Our guest needs no introduction to Jets fans, but I'd like to introduce him anyway because I really want to uh, highlight some of his career accomplishments. He's the fourth leading passer in Jet history in terms of yards. He's first in passer rating, first in completion percentage, had the Jets in the playoffs in 02, 04, and 06. He, of course, is Chad Pennington. Thanks so much, Chad, for joining us. Absolutely, Rich. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this is so you are uh, now involved. You are the ambassador for College Football's Mayo Clinic Comeback Player of the Year Award. I'm wondering if you could and I will get into some jet stuff and talk about Zach Wilson. But I want you to talk about that in particular. How are you involved? Well, it's quite an honor to work with Mayo Clinic. This is my second time working with Mayo Clinic. And there's one thing that the Mayo Clinic knows, and that's an answer can help one find their way. So that's why they're honoring these uh, college football student athletes uh, for their perseverance. And so every week, uh, Mayo Clinic will uh, nominate three players from all levels of college football for the Mayo Clinic Comeback Player of the Year. And then at the end of the season, there'll be three that will be honored as Mayo Clinic Comeback Players of the Year at the Fiesta Bowl. And so uh, last year, we had winners uh, like Kenneth Forsey from Kentucky, Silas Kelly from Coastal Carolina, and Jared Broussard from Colorado. And they have amazing stories. Uh, Kenneth Horsey came back from open heart surgery, if you can imagine that. Uh, so there's some uh, great inspirational stories there. and uh, Fans can go check these stories out at comeback-player.com. But certainly an honor to be able to work with Mayo Clinic on this and, and honor these young uh, college student athletes. I'm not really following it that closely on the college scene, but I have to think that Florida State quarterback, after what he's been through and coming back from that devastating knee injury, I would have to think he's going to have to be mentioned in the conversation. I would certainly hope so. And we're also working with the college sports information directors for these nominations. So I'm hoping that Florida State certainly uh, <laughs> nominates McKenzie Milton for sure, because that's an amazing story for sure. Yeah, it, it certainly is. And, uh, you know, you are certainly in, 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 uh, very aware of what it's like to be a comeback player of the year. You won it twice. And, you know, you won it in 06 with the Jets and then in 08 with Miami. You know, I guess that's like the kind of award you want to be winning more than once, but you did. I mean, right. it, it showed incredible perseverance. I mean, what was it like to do that twice? Those were two uh, two special years for you. Well, I think, first of all, it's really hard to imagine the, the time and energy that it takes to make a comeback 
like that. And then once you put in that time and energy, then you have to go perform at a high level too. So it's like double the energy, a double whammy. And so that's something that I think a lot, maybe not a lot of people know about. And then secondly, the support team you have to have around you, uh, the type of support that you have to have from your medical team to your family, to everyone around you, they have to be all in with you to kind of get you through those hump days, get you through those days that aren't great. And so it was certainly a team effort uh, on my part. And so when, when we're able to win those awards and celebrate that, I tried to celebrate it with everyone involved because I did feel like it was a team effort for sure. Now, I, I don't know if Jet fans truly appreciated what you went through in 04. You know, I was covering the team and I, and I have to admit, I don't even think I appreciated it at the time because we didn't know the extent of your injury. But you tore your rotator cuff against the Bills. I, I, I still see the play in my mind. I know exactly how it went. You missed three games and then you came back and you played the rest of the year with a torn rotator cuff. I can't even imagine doing something like that. Could you, and of course led the team to the playoffs. Could you just take us into like, how tough was that? How painful was it? And what you had to do on a weekly basis to get yourself on the field? Yeah. You know, Rich, it it was, it was extremely tough because uh, as a quarterback, you know, that's your livelihood is your right shoulder or your left shoulder, your throwing arm. And so when you can't necessarily make all the throws and deliver the ball the way you want to because of an injury like that, it makes it really difficult. And so mentally I had to really survive with my brain and I had to really make conscious decisions on throws that I knew I could make throws. I needed to stay away from. I mean, it was very challenging. And then by the way, not disclose any of this information so that the opponent didn't know that what you were dealing with and try to attack you certain ways and try to answer all those questions on why your arm strength looks less than subpar and you're like well <laughs> i'd love to tell you it's because i have a torn rotator cuff but i can't so right. uh, it, it was difficult and every week uh, you know the first three weeks was trying to get the swelling out uh, to get the injury to calm down a little bit and then from there on it was just trying to survive you're in survival mode every week using medications to help with the pain uh, doing all the different types of therapies to keep the swelling down and knowing that you couldn't deliver the football the way you would want to. And so my accuracy had to go way, way up. My timing had to be at top notch uh, because I had to be right on time with everything. I could not be late with any type of throw. So it was certainly a challenge for sure. I think they listed you on the injury report with like a bruised shoulder or something like that. And uh, and then I, I, I vividly remember this too. As soon as the season was over, the Jets medical staff revealed the entirety of the issue. I don't know how that would play nowadays, you know, with the injury reports and all the, you know, that, <laughs> right. that might've been a little, little issue nowadays, but at, at the time you guys got away from it. And that the thing that blew me away, and you'll remember this play in the San Diego chargers playoff game, you threw one of the best balls that in, in 33 years of covering the Jets that I've ever seen. It was that long touchdown of Santana Moss, it was about 50 yards. It was just like a, a perfect rainbow and you dropped it in the bucket. Did that hurt throwing that one? Or because, <laughs> I mean, we couldn't tell at the time, but it was, it was damn pretty. Well, uh, medication allows it not to hurt uh, a little bit. So, uh, but at the same time, that was one of those timing throws that I was talking about. I felt like the safety was not getting deep enough. And I knew the type of speed that Santana had. And I knew if I just threw it with accuracy and timing and put that ball out there early with the air, he would be he would have a chance to run underneath it. And 
When you've got a guy like Santana that can run like he can run, man, he makes it look so much more simple than what it is. But it was one of those throws that I certainly look back upon too and, and, and I'm proud of because I knew what it took to get there for sure. Yeah, it was amazing. And of course, you re, you know, you have the surgery, you rehab like crazy in the off season, and then you come back in 05 and then and then just, you know, your snake bit again. It happens against Jacksonville. I, you know, I can I can see that play too. I'm sure you can. You know, with you, you heard it again. What was like the mental process going? Having knowing you had to go through that entire process again, an, another torn torn cuff. Uh, that was a huge roller coaster of emotions. I remember sitting in Coach Edwards' office and just crying, and uh, because of you know the hard work that you put in, I knew how tough that training camp was and what I had to go through to try to work the kinks out. And, and quite frankly, Rich, I, I was not a hundred percent. When I look back at the the moment, I wish I would have taken more time. I wish I would have had just a little bit more wisdom to say, "Hey, Jay, take the reins here." And if you play great, you play great. And, and, and I'll deal with that rather than trying to come back too early. But that's so hard as a competitor. You want to be available for your team. And, uh, but I, I knew I wasn't 100%. I was still operating about 70% physically. I was trying to be really sharp mentally and dealing with all of the, Every day, the arm felt different. Every day, it just you didn't know what, what to expect. And so when I look back, if I have one regret, on my career, it would be trying to come back too early from that first surgery because I think that led to the second injury. I really do. I don't think, you know, because I wasn't completely healed, I wasn't totally as strong as I needed to be. And so I think that's what led to that second injury for sure. Yeah. I was just going to ask you, because obviously you were having a terrific career. I read your stats at the beginning of the, at the, at the interview. Did you, did you ever wonder, cause you had to retire early because it happened again, you know, in Miami ever wonder, or does it ever gnaw at you? Like what might've been like, had you been able to have a full career like, uh, and keep going, what might've happened? Uh, there's no doubt uh, you look back and go, wow, if I would have been a little bit more patient with that first injury, would I have been able to stay away from a second, third or fourth shoulder surgery? Because what you learn going through those surgeries is that it's a slippery slope. And the more you operate on that shoulder, you lose your elasticity in your shoulder and, and, and the, the uh, capsule and the muscles, they become more like leather instead of rubber. And so then they just give easier, no matter how hard you train and, and how strong you can get. And so I think, you know, that's something that I think about uh, when I think about you know what could have been. Now, I have no regrets as far as the time I put in, the energy, the focus, all of that. I, I laid it all out there on the line. But as far as the injuries are concerned, you think back, well, if you only had that one surgery uh, similar to Drew Brees, and I'm not comparing myself to Drew, but he was able to stay away from a second surgery uh, based upon his rehab and coming back, you know, what could have been for sure. Well, you, you gave Jet fans a lot of thrills in your time with the Jets, and you also had the distinction of being the only quarterback to interrupt Tom Brady's AFC East dominance <laughs> over his 20-year span. You, I mean, 20 years. He's still playing, which is incredible. You guys were in the same draft class. You ever see Tom, like, at, at, at an offseason or any time over the last couple of years? And I'm wondering if that comes up at all, that, you know, you were the one quarterback who prevented him from – it was like a clean sweep through 20 years in the division. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't had a chance to talk with or see Tom, but I, I have a great relationship. A great friend of mine is Byron Leftwich. And so 
we talk quite often. So I'm just really intrigued, number one, by watching Tom play uh, at the level he's playing at. And then two, watching the relationship between Byron and Tom. I think that's really special because it's really interesting when you watch Tom. He, he's still coachable. You, you watch his interactions with Byron. I mean, he's locked in to Byron and what Byron's given him and the information. I think he really respects Byron because he knows that Byron can see it through his eyes. He's been back there before, right? And so I just think that relationship is a great dynamic to pay attention to. And that's why they're really successful. They work really well together. Uh, Byron has a great knack for learning his players and learning the guys he's coaching and trying to tailor what they're doing toward that skill set. And so it's, it's really fun to watch those two interact and work together now at the level that Tom's playing at. And of course, you know, it's the Marshall connection for those who are listening you and Byron with the Marshall connection there. And, uh, you know, I, I just wanted to ask you, um, you know, you beat the jets in your, when you came back to the Meadowlands as a member of the dolphins, you beat them in the final game of the year, you guys go to the playoffs, the jets, of course, don't go anywhere that year and, and the whole place ends up getting fired. And Sam Darnold went through a similar thing this weekend. You know, he faced his old team. Now be honest, Chad, like when you beat the jets, you know, after they unceremoniously cut you when Brett Favre came in, that had to feel, that had to feel pretty good. Huh? Well, honestly, Rich, the first week that we played him, remember we played him in week one as well. Mm -hmm. uh, I had no business playing quarterback. I was so <laughs> emotional. I should have played linebacker. Um, now in week 17, it was a completely different feel, right? There were 17 weeks that went by, uh, you're completely entrenched, uh, as a dolphin. And, and it certainly felt, it felt amazing to be able to go back and beat your former team. And quite frankly, that's just kind of how sports work out sometimes, right? You have to go back and beat your former team to win something. But the mindset was certainly different. Uh, the focus was different. The first week, it was just on me being emotional about the situation. Week 17, it was like, wow, I've got a chance to help make NFL history. Uh, we've got a team that was 1-15 in 07, and now we can be 11-5 and five and win the division and make NFL history as the greatest turnaround. So that was really the focus rather than just trying to beat the Jets. Now, the, beating the Jets was the icing on, on top, right? That was, that, was the, uh, that was the gravy. But at the same time, the, the, it was a different feel, if you understand what I'm saying. I, yeah, definitely. And uh, I'm sure Sam, you know, felt some of those emotions on Sunday. Let's talk about their new quarterback, Zach Wilson. In some ways, he reminds me of you because the coaches are raving about his just his smarts, his work ethic, his his cerebral approach. It reminds me of a young Chad Pennington back in 2000 uh, when we did an interview once and you were showing me your playbook and all the notes you were taking. And I'm like, wow, this, this guy's really, really into it. Uh, what, what were your first impressions of uh, Zach Wilson? Well, I'm excited for him. I think he uh, has a great upside. Uh, I think watching him physically play right now, you can see he has the ability to make throws when his feet aren't completely set, which you have to have that in today's NFL with the run pass options and some of the things that they're doing from the spread systems. Uh, he can certainly extend plays. I thought his pocket awareness was really good, being able to move within the pocket and still deliver the football down the field. Now, when you watch him play, you're still watching a rookie. You're still seeing rookie mistakes and a rookie trying to understand timing in the NFL and accuracy and when to let the football go. And even on the touchdown pass, I felt like he missed the post 
as his number one or number two read. And, and that's just understanding the timing of routes and when they come open and the body language of defenders. And he'll learn that. And so I think the, the, the challenge here is for the Jets to, number one, be patient. Uh, and number two, make sure that he's not asked to win these games by himself. He's not going to be able to as a rookie, as a young quarterback. Tom Brady was not asked to. Uh, he had a, a good defense. He had parts around him. He had great veterans, Troy Brown, Kevin Falk, all these guys that could help take the pressure off of him as a young quarterback. And so from a Jets organization, I think that has to be the plan. Who can we bring in to take the pressure off? For me as a young quarterback, I can hand it to the Hall of Famer, Curtis Martin, right? I can fake it to him and drop back and throw it to Lavernius Coles, Wayne Krebet, Santana Moss. And so it, it's it's just a different feeling when, as a young quarterback, you know you don't have to be perfect every play for your team to have a chance to win. If I just do my job, then we'll have a chance. And so I think that's the approach that you have to have with the young quarterback. Totally agree. And, you know, he took a pounding in this game. And to his credit, he kept bouncing up and, and he showed his toughness. But speaking from the quarterback perspective, I mean – this kid, you don't want him doing that every week. I mean, you have to protect him. I mean, how dangerous is that? Even if he's not getting hurt, just to, you know, to be getting hit that often, can it play with a quarterback's mind at all? It, it certainly can. I think you've seen young quarterbacks in the past that had to deal with a lot of protection issues. It affects them later on down the road because they, it may be where they're trying to get rid of the ball too early now because they just don't trust what's going on up front. Now, there's another part to that as far as young quarterbacks learning protection and learning who they're responsible for in the protection, learning that, hey, you know what? Right now in the time during this, this game that I'm playing in, I, I don't have the luxury of holding on to the ball another split second. I need to go ahead and get rid of the football, deliver the football, get the football out of my hands, let my playmakers make plays instead of waiting for that big play down the field. So that's things that young quarterbacks have to understand and learn as they're understanding pass protection. Like the first sack of the game, I don't know if you recall the play where Brian Burns was unblocked. He came in from the front side and Zach was looking to the left. He comes unblocked and he gets hit. Uh, you know, shouldn't a veteran quarterback should be able to see that and, and be able to throw to his hot receiver in a situation like that? Well, and, and certainly that, that could be the option. You know, when I was watching that protection, I saw the right tackle. They had a blitz by the linebacker in the B gap and the right tackle picked up the B gap pressure from the, the backer. And then it looked like he was giving the end, the furthest guy away from the quarterback to the quarterback. Now that could have been the scenario where it was Zach's fault. It could have been a different scenario where it wasn't. I don't know where that plays in, but those are the types of things that we're talking about, right? Right. Um, because in college, with the hurry-up tempo in college, a lot of times these quarterbacks don't learn true pass protection. Uh, they try to beat uh, blitzes and things just by hurry-up tempo and getting uh, guys out leverage and getting the ball out of their hand with the screen game or whatever it may be. But that could certainly be an instance, Rich, where a young quarterback's learning, hey, you know, my tackle took the hit off of me from the inside linebacker. I've got to deliver the ball before this end gets here, which is hard to do when you're looking left and that guy's coming from the right. You've got to have your head on a swivel and that's something he'll have to learn. Now you're the perfect guy to ask this question before I let you go. Uh, they're facing the Patriots this week. Bill Belichick, we know how great a defensive mind he is. 
and you've been in this situation before, a young quarterback going up against the New England defense. What can Zach expect this weekend from Belichick and the Patriots? Well, typically when you face the Belichick defense, what you see pre-snap is not what you're going to get post-snap. He's always done a great job of finding, okay, who are the Jets leaning on to make big plays? Take that guy away and then make other players make plays for them. I, I think, though, this is different in that the Patriots are in a similar position, right? They don't have an experienced quarterback. They're dealing with a, a young rookie quarterback as well. And, and so it, it will be truly a matchup of two organizations learning how to work with a young quarterback, how to call a game with the rookie quarterback, playing it close to the best. I think it, it will be a game. It should be a game at least to where it goes down to the fourth quarter. So it may play into the hands of fans of being able to watch a great matchup here between two young rookie quarterbacks and two teams that are trying to get to the fourth quarter and win a football game. Yeah, and two 0-1 teams who uh, most definitely don't want to start in an 0-2 hole. Um, Chad, thank you so much for taking time. I just want to remind the listeners, you are the ambassador for college football's Mayo Clinic, Comeback Player of the Year Award. And so I know I'll be watching the rest of the college football season, like thinking in, in my head about potential nominees. And also, you're coaching high school football. You know, your son, you know, is at, is Marshall, you know, Marshall bound, your son Cole. Uh, you know, and keeping it in the family, right? <laughs> so your life is consumed by football. It, it is all things football for sure, Rich. But right now I'm trying to push the pause button. You know, my, my oldest Cole is a senior in high school, believe it or not. And so I'm trying to enjoy every minute because here in three or four months, he's out of here. And so, you know, I'm just trying to enjoy him and his two other brothers as well. And and just uh, and watch their development and be involved in their development through the game of football. So it's been a lot of fun. Well, you are a great ambassador in, 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 on many levels, so I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for Chad. This has been fantastic. Thanks so much. And hopefully, uh, you know, now that we, you know, COVID fans back at the games, hopefully you get to a Jet game this year. I'd love to see you at a Jet game. You too, Rich. Thanks so much. Well, obviously, you guys have a lot of questions after the week one performance, and so let's get to them. I'll do my best. At Vora underscore A, would the Jets consider keeping Matt Amendola as the kicker and the punter and use the extra roster spot for something else? You know, interesting question. Actually, I asked this question of Robert Sala on Monday's Zoom, and the Jets will sign a punter this week to replace Braden Mann, who's going to be lost for four to six weeks with his knee injury. And it's just not about punting. Now, Amendola did a good job. I mean, he actually averaged 48.5 gross, which is 14th in the league, by the way. And so he did a good job punting for a guy who'd never punted in a game before. High school, college, and this was his NFL debut. The thing is, it's more complicated because Braden Mann was the holder. He held uh, on PATs and field goals. And obviously, the Jets didn't try any in this game and because of game situations, but because they didn't have their holder. So going forward, they want a punter who can double as the holder and so they can get back to a normal operation. And so Amendola doesn't have to punt. He can just concentrate on kicking. So they will have a new kicker, a new punter this week. At Talon Family 013, what else can Denzel Mims do to get on the field? I was told that he was actually trending on Twitter Sunday afternoon after his 40-yard catch. And by the way, that 40-yard catch came on a busted coverage the Panthers were confused in the secondary and they left him wide open. But be that as it may, as it may, he only played three snaps. 
And I am not surprised because we were telling and, and you and writing all summer that Mims was working with the backups. And the question is why? Now, Robert Sala on Monday explained it this way. He said, if you're not among the top three receivers, you have to know the other three receiving positions extremely well so you can come into the game at a moment's notice. That's the X, the Z, and the F. And quite obviously, they don't feel comfortable with Mims playing a significant role. The unwritten reason, they don't think he knows the offense well enough, which is kind of hard to believe. But anyway, he is extremely frustrated. Mims is. That's what I understand. I think it stems from training camp. There were a handful of incident, you know, six or seven plays in training camp where he ran the wrong route, not dramatically wrong, not a total bust, but just slight imperfections in his route running that caused the coaching staff to get on him a little bit. I don't think he handled it well. I think he feels like he's being penalized for mistakes that some of the other receivers are making as well. So it's a dicey situation after the game. Mike LaFleur went up to Mims, tried to give him a little pep talk and said, hey, I'm proud of you. You're almost there. You're almost there. Just hang in there. And I think he meant it well, but I don't think Mims really, I don't think it went over well. I think it, it just increased his frustration. And I know this. I know there are a couple of teams out there who are interested in trading for Mims. And I think you saw one of them on Sunday. The Carolina Panthers, their coach, Matt Rule, coached Mims at Baylor. I think he's already told people that he'd be interested in trading for him if the Jets don't want him. It's a situation to watch. This Sunday, Crowder could be back. Cole could be back. The Jets aren't going to dress seven receivers. They conceivably could deactivate Denzel Mims, which would be a real stinging indictment for a second-round pick. Next question, at Amire 1000 you have seen Becton now for a year plus. What can you say to calm the bust narrative? Does he have enough drive or is this a Mo Wilkerson situation revisited? Uh, I think it's far too premature to use the bust label on, on Mackay. I think he was overrated to a degree last year. He was a social media phenomenon because of some of his pancake blocks. I think he's got immense potential. He's a very good player. He's learning a new scheme. This is a really different scheme. Outside zone requires movement on the snap. You have to get out of your stance and start moving horizontally. In the past, he was playing more of a gap scheme. Basically, you just maul the guy in front of you. That is not the case anymore. Uh, that said, he's got to make this adjustment. And also, he's got to stay healthy. Last year, there was the nagging shoulder then he's got the plantar fasciitis in the spring. He misses OTAs. Now he's got the knee injury. That, more than anything, will get him to that quote-unquote bust narrative. He's got to stay healthy. And now he's out four to six weeks, probably having arthroscopic knee surgery. Next one from at Ben J. Liss. It was great to see the halftime adjustment that actually worked. When was the last time that happened? Well, I don't know when the last time it happened, but you're right. There were some good adjustments. I like how the defense got more aggressive in the second half. They started blitzing a little bit more. Their blitz rate went up in the second half. And I think it forced Christian McCaffrey to stay in and block and took him out of some of the passing routes that he was killing him on in the first half. So I had McCaffrey more in a blocking role. I think that helped. Really, the defense played better in the second half. 
Now, one thing about McCaffrey, he's a good blocker. On that long touchdown pass to Robbie Anderson, he blocked Sheldon Rankins because Rankins beat the right guard with a spin move, and he was closing in on Sam Darnold, and, and McCaffrey stepped up and blocked him. If he doesn't make that block, that touchdown doesn't happen. So good for McCaffrey on that one. Also, offensively, I think you saw more tempo on offense, and I think that helped Zach Wilson, and you saw a much better performance from him in the second half. So you're right, Ben, good halftime adjustments. They just have to uh, come out better, obviously. And question from Matthew, at Matthew Salvati, maybe because I'm a Jets fan, so I see it more, but the New York Jets organization seems to have more injuries than any other organization over the last 30 years. Maybe other than Testaverde going down, the Parcells years were clean. Is this because of poor strength and conditioning coaches? Uh, Matthew, I wish I had a stat that could illustrate what the last 30 years have looked like injury-wise. I don't, sorry. But you're right. They seem to get some killer injuries. The last couple of years under Gase were just injury-riddled. So the Jets go out and hire a new, they create a sports performance department, hire a bunch of people, guys with doctorate degrees coming in to try to get this team in better shape. And we've already seen... A bunch of key injuries, Carl Lawson, the Achilles, Becht in the knee, LaMarcus Joyner out for the year with a torn triceps. Now, could those injury, are they flukes or is it because of a poor strength and conditioning program? I think probably some of those are more fluky, but, you know, you see guys getting hamstring injuries like Cashman, you know, that I mean, he always gets hamstring injuries, so I'm not sure that'll ever change. But it's certainly not an auspicious start for this highly touted sports performance department. The injuries are mounting, and it oh, don't they always seem to mount with the Jets? That's a good question, Matthew. What a difference a few coaching changes make. On Monday, Robert Sala was asked about facing Bill Belichick for the first time, and he said, quote, it's an honor to share the same field as him, end quote. Contrast that with Rex Ryan in 2009, who basically said, well, actually, not basically, he did say, quote, I didn't come here to kiss Belichick's rings. Well, talk about a contrast in styles that, of course, two dif different coaches with two different personalities and the one common thread is, years and years later, still, the Jets still can't beat the Patriots. They have lost 10 in a row, and they have lost 16 out of the last 18 matchups since that epic playoff win over the Patriots in January of 2011. Everyone thought, oh, the tide is turning. The Jets have closed the gap. Well, since then, the Patriots have essentially just stuck it to the Jets Every time, just about every time, Todd Bowles won one game. Adam Gase won no games against the Patriots. And now Robert Sala is introduced to this rivalry. I don't even think you can call it a rivalry because it's been so one-sided. He's introduced to this AFC East series. Let's call it that. We'll see if he has any more luck or, or ability to beat the Patriots than any of his predecessors did. This is going to be a tough matchup. It'll be uh, hyped, of course, as the Zach and Mac show, Zach Wilson and Mac Jones, the two rookie quarterbacks going against each other. Uh, but there's so many other subplots to this game. 
it's uh, I think it's going to be extremely difficult for the Jets to win. The Patriots are, are a veteran, smart team on defense. So I think they're going to throw some stuff at Wilson that he hasn't seen before. Now, last week, the Patriots had no cover zero blitzes in their loss to Miami. I have a feeling that changes this week. I think they're going to turn up the pressure a little bit to try to confuse Wilson. Likewise, the Jets will do the same with Mac Jones to try to confuse him. He, too, is a rookie. The thing is, I don't think the Jets have the personnel or the scheme to do that. They're so young that I don't think Salah will get too exotic. He'll want to keep things simple. He doesn't want to outsmart himself while trying to outsmart the rookie. So that's why I give the edge to the Patriots there. The Patriots, it's a tough matchup for the Jets. They throw to the ball to their backs. James White with six catches last week. The tight ends, Smith and Henry, didn't have huge games last week, but we know they're good players. It's tough for the Jets because they have so many issues at linebacker and safety. So those are going to be really tough matchups. I think the Patriots will come out and try to pound the ball against the Jets. They had trouble with McCaffrey last week. I think they could be exposed in the front seven in terms of run defense. So this is going to be extremely tough. It's a home opener. It'll be an emotional stadium. The place will be fired up the first game with fans in two years. So I think the Jets will have that on their side. I think there's just a little too much to overcome here. So I think the Jets are going to start out 0-2, which is a bummer because it was so much optimism coming into the year. But I'm going to call it Patriots 22, Jets 17. I think it'll be a competitive game right until the fourth quarter. The Jets are going to play a lot of games, a lot of one-possession games that go into the fourth quarter. This one, ordinarily, I'd say they can beat the other rookie quarterback, but it's not just Mac Jones. It's a veteran team with a lot of smart players and the best coach in history. And so, once again, I think the Jets will end up kissing Belichick's ring here, and the tide is not going to turn until the Jets become a better overall roster. That's the end of this week's show. I want to thank Chad Pennington, again, for joining us. That was some great stuff. Chad, of course, now an ambassador for the Mayo Clinic and its involvement in college football and their Comeback Player of the Year award. So keep a lookout for that during the season. want to thank my producer, Jeff Scopin, for putting it all together. And we'll see you next week on Flight Deck. Flight Deck.